Today, after talking about prayer, after talking about rest, today we're going to be talking about work. And work is like that old piece of college furniture that you inherited when you were a young, uh, young person. It's like that Papazon circle chair, you know? It like takes up more space in the living room, and for some people, you have no idea what to do with it. Work is that way for a lot of people. It takes up the most space, more than anything except for sleep. Uh, multiple hours a day, we've got to do it, but for some of us, we have no idea how to tap into it or how to connect it to our faith. Perhaps some of us are longing for meaning and we can't find it there. Whatever the case is, we may view work as a necessity. For some people, you might, you might have a, a difficult job. You might have a difficult course of life. You might have difficult work in front of you, and for you, it might be a sad necessity that you have to go through in order to pay the rent or just to live. For others, you might have your dream job, and yet if you were asked honestly, maybe your, your idea of happiness wouldn't have anything to do with work. It would be retirement, and maybe that is why you're working now, is to reach retirement where your heart can be full of joy. Whatever the, the exact view or perspective on work, for a lot of people, it just takes up a lot of uh, space, and we don't know quite what to make of it. For a lot of people, work is a sad necessity, something we have to do in order to get to the place where we might actually be happy. And that kind of narrative is not new. It's old. It's thousands of years old. Thousands of years ago, about when the book of Genesis was written, a little bit before, uh, the common popular narrative in that day and age in the ancient world was that work was terrible and that human beings were created for terrible work to relieve the gods. I want to give you this small quote from one of the oldest creation narratives called Enuma Elish. Now, this is not the Bible, okay? This is a, an old ancient Babylonian creation narrative saying that the people whom he, speaking of Marduk, created the form of life that breathes, he imposed the work of the gods on them so that they, the gods, might find rest. And there you have it. This was the common explanation for work and just creation for thousands of people in the ancient world. And it went something like this. Work is awful. The gods are way above work. So the gods created humans to exist as slaves to work so that the gods can experience delight and rest and leisure. And that is why human beings are here. That was the popular narrative in the ancient world. Now imagine the shockwaves that would have gone through the ancient world when the Hebrew Bible came in on the scene, explaining a different God, the one true God, and his intent from the beginning. This is our text for the day, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that fills the earth, creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is where the Hebrew God would have done a mic drop. As people listening to this narrative would have frozen in their tracks at a different kind of God with a different kind of purpose for the people that he created. The prevailing narrative in this, and you see it in the language, especially in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, subdue, have dominion over. These are kingdom-oriented words, but they're also work words. One of the first things that God tells human beings to do when he creates them is work because work is good. Here's what I mean by work. Work is any activity involving mental or physical effort done in order to achieve a purpose or a result, okay? That's my working definition of work today. So in other words, it's not just something that you get paid for, although it certainly would include that, right? But it's also those of you that are volunteering. Those are the, of you that are maybe volunteering for nonprofits. Those of you that are uh, students in college, high school, junior high. It's working parents, or, excuse me, stay-at-home parents. Anything, any kind of activity involving mental or physical effort done in order to achieve a purpose or a result. And the Bible from the very beginning of the narrative states this, it's good. God created it, not as a mistake, not as a punishment, but as a source of meaning and purpose in your life. Why is work good? Because we were created to join God, not as slaves, but to join God as co-workers in his work. I want to hone in on one of these words, and there's a few of them. There's about four of them. Be fruitful, right? Multiply. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over it. These are work types of words, kingdom words. I just want to hone in on one of those, the word subdue, which you might, you might have that cringing feeling when you hear that word subdue, especially in this text. It seems to have these violent connotations. And this verse has been used by a lot of people to exploit things and people. That is not the original intention of this passage. If you look at the background of this passage, what God seems to have in mind when he calls people to subdue the earth is to cultivate that which he has already created. To cultivate that which is created. I want to show you where I'm getting that with your Bibles open if you're there. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 1, I want you to see how everything starts. God says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything was fully functioning and awesome, and Disneyland was at the center all at once, right? That's not what it says. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's how it all started. God did not create everything to pop out of the box, winding it up and letting it loose. He created an unformed substance by which he would later cultivate. And, every, uh, and for verses 3 through 36, we see God taking that raw substance in verse 2 and then cultivating its undeveloped potential. He could have just created everything as it now exists. He didn't do that. He created a raw substance, and then for a week, or however long it was, 
begin to cultivate its undeveloped potential. This seems to be the way God likes to do things. God himself likes to work. You may look at that verse without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep and see perhaps God created stuff and it didn't work out very well, so he created again. That's not what it is. Uh, the Old Testament scholar John Walton calls the scene in Genesis 1-2 where it says without form and void. He calls that uh, not yet functioning. He created a raw substance that was not yet functioning and then cultivated its undeveloped potential. Here's how I like to put it. Uh, last month, my wife Brianna and I celebrated our 10-year anniversary, and we went up, yeah, woo! And we went up to Northern California with the trees and the redwoods and the greenery, and we spent about three or four days just away from the noise, our phones off, and hiking, doing all of that stuff. But looking back a month ago, my favorite part of that trip was when she came into that trip with a little Lego set that we had been given, to, uh, given as a gift. It was a Lego set of the New York City skyline. And one of the nights that we were there, we were sitting in these chairs, she opens it and throws a pile of like hundreds of Legos on this table, and we went to town on that Lego set. It took us two days, we're working on it, we're just, just the sweat on our brow, but then it turned into laughter, and we were telling stories, and we're throwing Legos at each other, and it was amazing. And at the end, after two long nights, we built the New York City skyline in all of its glory, just a five-foot replica of the city. Just kidding, it was this big. <laughs> and it's on our mantle. And I never look at it anymore, actually. Uh, as I look at it, I'm, I, I think back upon our anniversary, and I'm like, the fun part of this was her and I building this together. Part of me wants to smash it into pieces when she's not looking so that we can rebuild it. But if you can think of that, a pile of Legos, you can think of the creation of the universe. God didn't just make the New York City skyline straight out of the box. You need to just make everything with all of the cultural, uh, culture and society and talents and development that we now see. He created an unformed substance because God seems to like to work. And in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, in that verse that we just read, God then uh, calls us to continue his work of creation by giving us the rain, so to speak. We're not gods, certainly enough. But we're stewards, and he says, now, you take what I have given you, what I have created, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, or cultivate it, and have dominion over all of this. This is our calling. That means that a meaningful life isn't possible in spite of work. A, meaning, a meaningful life is possible precisely because of work. We were created for purpose. We were created to move. We were created to think. We were created to problem solve. We were created to put our minds to a task and to, and, and to accomplish it. Now, you may at this point agree with me and say, I, I can see the ideal that God originated, that work is good, it's a reflection of who he is, and he's calling us into it, not as slaves, but as co-workers. But why is this sometimes so far from my reality tomorrow on Monday? Why does it not feel that way on Tuesday when I'm grinding it out? 
If God make work to be good, why are so many of my conversations with people about their restlessness with work, their conflicts with employees, employers, and coworkers? Why are so many of my conversations with people around this feeling of being stuck in a dead-end job or a confusing path or with no idea what's ahead? in the next couple years to come. We might say, I know the Bible says work is good, but our experience says work is also frustrating sometimes. Why is this the case? For that, you just got to flip ahead a couple chapters to Genesis chapter 3. Give you a little backstory on Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve representatives of humanity in the garden have been given every resource, every gift, and every blessing known to humanity in God. Complete access to God and all of his resources. And God gives them a limitation, like all humans should have. God-given limitations. And the only one that they have is, don't touch my tree. And some of us might think of this as an arbitrary command. Like, God doesn't want you to make a fruit salad out of that one, but you can eat all of that. But there's more going on here. God gives them human limitations, like he often does, parameters by which to move, and in which they will thrive if they stay in within those parameters. And like humans tend to do, these ended up saying, God, I hear your limits, I hear your parameters, I see your plan for my life, but I have a better one, and I'm going to do it. They take of the fruit. This was more than just eating some bad fruit. This was an act of treason against God, saying, in effect, I make a better God than you make. I'm going to live my life the way that I want to live. And out of that flows a curse. Uh, theologians call this the fall, or the, the entrance of sin into the world. And we see the effect of that, that a curse uh, disintegrates all of human life and flourishing. We see this in Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19. Why is work frustrating? This is why. Adam, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, for you shall eat, uh, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The curse that enters into the world through human sin, uh, yes, that uh, Adam and Eve accomplished, but that human beings have been living in since the dawn of time. This curse can be thought of in this way. It's the disintegration of every area of human life and flourishing. That's the effect of sin. And it affects everything. It affects work. It affects your work. Timothy Keller, the East Coast pastor, author of the book Every Good Endeavor, excellent uh, book on work, writes about three ways that this disintegration plays out in the workplace or in our work. The first one is work becomes fruitless. By fruitless, I mean that it's, it feels unproductive. It doesn't work sometimes. 
Even our greatest plans don't seem to get out the gate. You ever had that, that experience? Maybe it was launching a business and going bankrupt. Maybe it was uh, trying to get ahead in a tough market. Maybe it was a bad boss who kept thwarting you, who seemed to be after you for no other reason than he just doesn't like you. Maybe it's just not making enough money to make ends meet, not being able to pay the rent. Maybe it's unemployment, and the list goes on and on and on. I'm sure you can come up with your own examples. Work is fruitless. And so the Christian or the, uh, the visitor in the room might be asking, how do, you, how do you take dominion, like God tells us to, when you can't even seem to move forward? The second way that, that the disintegration of the curse of sin plays out in the workplace is that work isn't just fruitless, work is pointless. By pointless, I mean it, it, it feels like there's no meaning. You ever feel like you're just trudging away at a task? There's no overarching reason for what you're doing. Uh, I love that verse in Ecclesiastes 2.17. Uh, and by love, I use the term loosely. Where the, the, the writer says, I came to hate life. Because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless. Like chasing the wind. Anyone feel like that uh, has been true in the job place? at home, at work. Uh, examples of this, I'll give you a big one. The effect of the industrial age, right? When 20th century, the, the science of efficiency took one worker who had maybe 20 jobs and an imagination and turned his job into 20 people's jobs. And all of a sudden, you had one person doing a single, mundane, ordinary thing over and over and over and over for 10 hours, 16 hours a day saying to themselves, meaningless, why am I here? On the smaller end, perhaps the work that you're doing, you're unable to tie into some grand scheme. You're not sure why you're doing what you're doing other than to make some bucks and to pay the rent. Perhaps you would say, I feel like my work is pointless. Some of us perhaps are asking, how do you subdue, how do you cultivate, like God does, when you're mindlessly executing a task all day long? The third thing that sin causes in the workplace uh, through the curse is that work is selfish. We base our identity on our work, on our career, on our skills, on our productivity, on our ability to get things done. And in so doing, we can end up hurting others in order to protect ourselves. We live in a rat race where people are climbing over one another in order to get ahead. We come to church and we hear about how Jesus was kind and generous and humble and how he came to serve and not to be served. And we try to, to, to uh, translate that into a workplace that is cutthroat. And we find ourselves being dragged into the abyss of selfishness. Work is fruitless, work is pointless, and work is selfish. And perhaps you are here because you find something about Jesus attractive, but you don't know how to integrate your faith in Christ with work that is fruitless and pointless and selfish. And I want to start with this thought, that following Jesus changes 
everything about you. It certainly changes the way that you approach your work. See, underlying the whole story of the Bible is not just the creation of the world, but God's plan for the world. And God's plan for the world reaches an apex in what Christians, you might have heard this term before, call the gospel. The gospel is just shorthand for the good news. The Bible tells a story about the good news. Good news about what? Well, Jesus came preaching the good news that a kingdom, God's kingdom, was about to break into our disintegrated world. That means our world with its curse, with its brokenness, and with its sin has not been left to its own. God's world has broken into our world through this person called Jesus Christ, and he came to change everything. He came to heal the disintegration, and he came to heal the disintegration as far as it can be found, including in the mundane and ordinary places in your life. I love that hymn by uh, Isaac Watts. We sing it all the time at Christmas, Joy to the World. We never seem to sing the second verse, which is a crying shame. It goes like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's the gospel. That God's world is broken into your world and he's about putting together what has been disintegrated as far as the curse is found. And here's how the gospel sets you free from the disintegrations in your workplace. For those of you that feel like work is fruitless, perhaps those of you that feel like life is fruitless, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ says your life is not fruitless, it is filled with a sense of hope. Even when your circumstances cry out unproductive, the gospel says hopeful. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22 through 25, Paul speaks about how creation is under this curse and it's longing to be set free. Let me read the verse for you. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who have the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. You see what Paul is saying? We're, we're living in this tension where things are broken and disintegrated, even our work, our families, our souls, our mental health, the list goes on and on. We're waiting for liberation. Then he goes on to say, it's in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You know what Paul is saying? We live in this place that feels broken and disintegrated, but the reason we're able to persevere is because we have a hope. We not, might not be able to see it, but that's the point of hope. You can't see the tangible effects right now. You see it in the future, but that's what gets you through the present. That no matter how bleak the situation at home looks, I see the ending chapter, and I recognize that the chapter I'm living in is not the ending chapter to my story. God will somehow bring all of these things together for the good of those who love him. That's why I can continue to work in what appears to be a fruitless endeavor. God's got this, 
and he's going to bring it all together. I love that short story by J.R.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. Niggle was a painter. His whole life was centered around art. And he sat down one day in his living room and began to paint a beautiful leaf. And before he could finish the panoramic view of this artistry that he had in mind, in his mind, the door knocks and it's his neighbor needing a favor. So he answers the neighbor. And over and over, after emergency, after crisis, after phone call, after knock, he's interrupted from his work until he dies. And he gets to what seems to be heaven in the story, and there, right in the middle of heaven, is a giant tree. And he recognizes the tree. It's got his leaf. It's the leaf that he spent his life trying to paint and could never finish because it felt like a fruitless endeavor. And there in the middle of glory, he sees what he started on earth finished in heaven. This is what Paul seems to be preaching to us. You can have hope in this life even when it seems futile and fruitless. What you started on earth will be finished in heaven. Two, where we are given a lack of meaning, God gives us meaning apart from our circumstances. I love that chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul talks about the resurrection. He says, this is the gospel that I received that I now preach to you. Christ died, uh, he was buried, and he rose again according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to speak about the effects of the resurrection. And one of them is that we're forgiven, but the other effect is that we will be raised from the dead. And then still another effect is that everything will be raised from the dead. Everything that we see, everything that was, is broken, everything that is disintegrated, one day will be uh, brought to its original intent in glory. And it's for that reason that Paul ends this passage by saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and sisters, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The leaf that you started in this life will be a tree in the next one. Take heart. We're not just given hope and meaning, we're given a new identity, even if we struggle with finding identity in work. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, uh, what, what, what circumvents our selfishness is to get over ourselves, which is a difficult thing to do. So Christ does it for us. He exchanges our life for his life and becomes one with us so that we have died to our old life and our new life is hidden with Christ in God. When you have hope and meaning and identity, these shape the way that you can approach work. If we have hope and meaning and identity in Christ, we can view work not as a curse, but as a calling. I love the old English word vocation, describing work. Vocation comes literally from these two words, to call somebody. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, Paul is speaking to a bunch of people that are in these careers, they're in these job situations, some of them are married, some of them are single, and they get born again and they come to the faith and they're asking, should I change everything about my life in order to follow Jesus? And Paul says, stay where you're at. You don't need to become a missionary or a pastor, stay where you're at. And he uses this phrase, you have been called there. That's where we get the idea of vocation. 
If you have meaning and hope and identity in Christ, your work is changed from a curse to a calling. You might be asking yourself, well, how do I serve and follow God at work? I'm an engineer. I push buttons all day. I bag groceries. And you might even be tempted to think that it's, you're supposed to be doing these overtly Christianized activities. You might think, well, I, the only way to serve God at work is if your work is very spiritual, like a pastor or a worship leader or an overseas missionary. Uh, but I'm a fourth grade school teacher, uh, or I'm a plumber, or I'm a framer. And you may be tempted to think that the only way to honor God at work is to do very outlandish, overtly Christian activities at work, like blast Christian music out of your truck, or out of your office, or wear Christian t-shirts, or evangelize, which is certainly a great thing. But what about if you're in the mailroom at the bottom of the building in the basement by yourself with nobody to evangelize? How does one honor God with their work? This idea that we have to do pastor things at work is really influenced by, more by Gnosticism in the first century than it is by the way of Jesus. The Gnostics believed that the, the physical world, the material world, the body was gross, disgusting, horrid, and evil, and the invisible spiritual things were very good. That is not the narrative of the Bible. God came, come in, comes in on the scene and he says, I created the material world and it is good and it is spiritual. That means whatever we're doing, as long as we're not exploiting, hurting people, or doing something unjust, God is working or has the potential to work in your work. That means he cares about your work. Whatever you're doing right now, whatever career, whatever task, whatever thing at home that you are a part of, whatever project it is, you have the potential to have God involved in the work that you're doing. He cares about your work because Ephesians chapter 1.10 says, his goal is to unite all things in his son Jesus Christ. And you are a part of that to subdue, to cultivate that which he has already created. That means our daily actions have the potential to be spiritual. That means every action has the potential to honor God. And that means at the very least, let's say you're the person at the bottom of the basement sorting out mail by yourself. At the very least, being a good Christian at work simply means being competent at your job. I love this uh, quote by the late Dorothy Sayers who said, what the church should be telling the carpenter, for example, is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Fill that line in with whatever you're doing and wherever you're at. The very first demand your religion with God makes upon you is to be your kid's mom is to bag those groceries, is to assemble that piece of furniture, is to launch that business, to step out into the deep places and take a faith-filled risk, is to teach that classroom, is to assemble that piece of software, is to code that program, and so on and so forth, that perhaps God might be working in your work as you are cultivating creation for his glory. 
the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at spaces in our lives. One is our relationship with God. We call it prayer. And we end each of these with rhythms that we want to take into our lives. For prayer, it was, I asked, how can you turn what you're uh, going through into prayer? Last week, Ruthie spoke on rest. And the rhythm we were given that Sunday was look for pockets of pause. Today, the rhythms we should be looking for in our work have to do with this, learning to see God at work in your work. Going back to work tomorrow or whenever it is that you go back and learning with your spiritual eyes to see where God is at work in your work and to join his hands with your hands. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And I actually, I want to ask the prayer team to come forward as well. They'll be at the front and also in the back. And here's why. In the Bible, whenever somebody was called into a vocation, often it was a priestly vocation, sometimes it was a kingly vocation, sometimes it was some other ministerial vocation, sometimes children were dedicated to God, the list is, is, goes on and on. They always were called to be prayed for. We see this pattern of people receiving the laying on of hands by their fellow believers. For what reason? For an anointing by the Holy Spirit to come upon them for the task at hand. People in the Bible knew that they were being called by God for a purpose. They didn't take that lightly. They recognized, I need the power of the living God to come upon me. I cannot just go back to Sonos and go through the, the motions. I cannot just go back to Galita Valley School District and just go through the motions. I can't just go back to Trader Joe's and just go through the motions. I am a Christian. I am filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, called by the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread light into the city of Santa Barbara. I need an anointing from God this day. That was the pattern in the Bible that should be the pattern for us today. I want to invite you today to come receive prayer during worship. We've got prayer teams in all four corners. Look for that lanyard. Go straight to them and tell them, I want breakthrough in my workplace right now. I, you might not even know what to ask for. Who cares? Let them ask for you. Just come up and say, I want more. I want a breakthrough. I want to transform how I see work. Some of you, you don't need to transform how you see work. You know what your calling is. What you need is to be confirmed and commissioned by God. Ask for an anointing to come upon you today. And the prayer teams are ready to anoint you with oil, as we're told about in the book of James and in the Old Testament, as a symbol and a sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon you for a task. You need to be anointed for work. Some of you might say, well, I'm not a pastor. I don't need to be anointed. Pfft, don't need more pastors in Santa Barbara got an oversaturation of pastors. We need more teachers who recognize and know their calling from God in the workplace. We need police officers and paramedics who know their calling and their unction in the workplace. We need technicians at Sonos. We need software engineers at Procore. We need the people answering the phones. 
We need people in streets. We need people making foods. We need people washing dishes. We need people at the Goleta school districts. We need them at the Montecito school districts. We need them in every single nook and cranny in this city to rise up and be awakened by the Spirit of God to say, I'm not just here to make a paycheck. I am here because the power of the living God has filled me. And what would happen if every Christian on Procore's campus, Sonos's campus, UCSB, the district of the city, Santa Barbara Police Department, Raytheon, Appfolio, Decker, City Hall, Zotos, I don't even care, wherever it is that you work, all of a sudden woke up on a Monday morning and said, I intend to be and walk like Jesus, but I need the power of the living God to fall upon me. What if every Christian in Santa Barbara woke up that way tomorrow? We might experience a fresh outpouring of his spirit. But for that to happen, you've got to ask. So I'm inviting you to do that as we sing. Let's lift up a shout of praise today. For Christ isn't going to change the world in this building. It's going to change it outside you are, where you live, and where you work. I hope every chair is empty by the end of this morning. Come and receive prayer from God to be on mission for his kingdom and his glory. Amen.